Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Just for the halibut! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the podcast about fish, fishing, and eating fish that is always entertaining, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm your host tonight, John Crappie Hippie King, co-founder of Glasswater Angling Lead-Free Fishing, and in the Glasswater Studios tonight to help me with these hosting chores, I have Todd Correer, the fish rap writer. How's it going hey, tonight, Todd? Hey, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Even though I can't see you, it's nice to see you. <laughs> You can't see me. All right. Well, that's a that's a bonus. Hey, buddy. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff on the show tonight. We got uh, some stuff about how to clean gar. We've got a piece from Amy Robeson from Robeson Outdoor Solutions on pond probiotics, what they are, what they're good for, and how they saved my pond from certain disaster. And finally, we've got a featured presentation from an old friend of the podcast, our international correspondent, all the way from Australia. Luke Chomings, fishing lure designer for Chamos Lures, and he is going to tell us all about his trip to the World Recreational Fishing Conference that was held in Melbourne, Australia earlier this year, and uh, I'm awfully excited to hear that. But first, before we get going, I got an incredible message from you, young man, that was telling me how the fish are just going crazy all up and down the Northeast. You've been to Maine. You've been here. You've been on your usual haunts around Rhode Island. You say everywhere you go. You're getting your lure stuck in a fish's mouth. Uh, <laughs> catch the listeners up on what's going on there. Well, first of all, thank you. No one's called me young man in about 35 years. So I'll, you know, I appreciate that. <clears throat> you caught me <laughs> off guard with that one. Thank you. Yes, the fishing year is good. Uh, we did go to Maine a couple weeks ago and they had suffered through uh, a week of very heavy rains. So all the big rivers like the Androscoggin and the Penobscot and the Kennebec were very, um, very high flows, very overflowed. So just by happenstance, because the place we stay is on a lake, the lakes were hot. They were full of smallmouth, largemouth. Most of the places that we would go up there, it's on the Penobscot, and they were just too rough to fish. So we kind of hit some of our largemouth spots, and my my very adept 20-year-old son was in the front of our canoe in a spot that we know is full of largemouth, and he pulled out an 18-inch brook trout, which is, which is almost undefinable up there because it just doesn't happen, except... There's so much water up in the rivers. They were washing the fish out of the lakes and ponds and down streams and into other ponds. So, so that was that was kind of cool. That was an unexpected when you're throwing a largemouth, you know, a big old Senko, eight inch, you know, rubber worm trying to catch a largemouth, and you pull out an 18 inch brook trout. That's that's pretty cool. Well, I love that story. I love that story. I actually got a letter from a customer, uh, Forrest. Thank you for the letter. And he sent me a picture of a nice brookie he got on a crappie doodler of all things up in British Columbia. So, but nothing approaching that 18 inches. I mean, this was a good looking brookie, but holy cow, that is a big brook trout. Yeah, definitely caught us both by surprise. And, you know, as far as the down here in New England, southern New England, the striper fishing has been very good. We are seeing tons of bait, tons of mackerel, chub mackerel are moving in now. And just the last week or two, we are seeing a whole lot of sharks. Oh, good deal. <clears throat> the tuna are showing up. They're chasing the mackerel and the bluefish. And we are seeing blue sharks. We are seeing sharks come in really close. And uh, for the people that follow things like 
the Atlantic White Shark Institute, people that kind of track the sharks, which is kind of fun. We are seeing a lot of sharks in really close. All right. I mean, that is a good thing. I mean, I'm always like the more sharks, the better. But uh, is this something I maybe I shouldn't be so excited about or can I go ahead? Well, I think from your part in middle America, it's a really cool thing for, for those of us, you know, who might go wading in the surf at night or or take a kayak out. We are seeing sharks. I, I don't really think it's a it's a phenomenon because the sharks are here, you know, millennia before we were. I think there's sort of with a little bit of warming water uh, and the baits in a little closer. I think the sharks are following them in closer, kind of like the whales are. And we're seeing a really dynamic change in our inshore waters. And there's a lot of sharks. Wow. Okay. Well, that kind of, you know, that kind of give me the, the willies, but you know, how uh, aggressive is a blue shark? Is it a real aggressive shark? Or are they more even tempered? They're more even tempered, you know, like any other wild animal, they don't like to be cornered. Generally there's a, there's a video going around from block Island where there's a shark in close, like four feet of water inside the Harbor. Kids are walking by with their lunches in their hands, you know, going crabbing for the day. And the shark is under the dock, which is, which is rare. That's, I mean, that's a total anomaly, but generally they're, you know, they're just kind of fishing for their mackerel or their herring or their bluefish where they can find. So it's generally not a risk. The, there are still sharks. There are still predators, and we are stepping our toes in their water. So, yeah, I don't think anyone could reassure me enough that I would put me totally at ease. But then again, if them fish are biting, it's kind of like the gator thing down in Florida. People go, "Oh, you know, you gotta be careful wading in this grass and this and that because of the gators." But I've seen a couple guys on YouTube. It's what it takes to get an angle on them bats. I'm gonna go ahead and wait on out there. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> I don't know. I might want to say that around here right now. <laughs> I guess it. A decision made on the spot and uh, made with um, the the risk and reward equation. That's what I'm I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking to say. There you go. You gotta know your risks. So we're gonna meet some cool people this week. We are gonna meet some cool people this week. I'll tell you something. Have you ever caught a gar in your life, Todd? A gar. Um, well, I know about Terry Gar. And she was, <laughs> she's pretty. I know um, Garth Brooks. I think he was a country singer. Garth Hudson loved him from the band. Garth Hudson, miss him. You know, I actually I have Garth Hudson's autograph and a record somewhere downstairs. Of course, Gar Jerry Garcia. You know, we but we can't we can't go too far down the Jerry Garcia rabbit hole because I'll just start crying and the whole thing will collapse and you know it will implode here and that's bad. So the yeah, only yeah. Gars I really know about are um, you know. Terry Garda, Jerry Garcia. So I, I don't right. know much about the, the fish. Don't know nothing about our fish, our beautiful long nosed gar that we got out here in the Midwest. A fish of slow moving rivers and lakes and wonderful, wonderful fish that evolved in its present form about oh, 100, 150 million years ago. So it's been swimming around for a while. We don't talked they have about incredibly, incredibly thick flesh. Isn't that one of their, like the armament on the outside? Isn't that one of their elements of survival? Well, you know what? That's a great question. And we will answer that question coming up in this piece where I get with Jeff Danielson and we talk about cleaning gar. What are you going to do? Ways to cook it in the fish nerds culinary corner. 
Hey, Jeff Donaldson, how's it going this morning? Hey, John, good. I'm out here in the in my uh, top secret laboratory tying some flies that I replacing some that I lost last weekend. <laughs> oh, all right, where'd you go? I went to Roaring River, and uh, the dry fly bite was on fire, and especially for stuff like ants and hoppers and stuff like that. And so, in the process of catching a lot of fish, I also put a lot of flies in trees, etc. <laughs> well, it's the name of the game, brother. Name of the yep. game. Hey, speaking of fishing, and speaking of fishing in a in the in the river or the creek, you know, when we go on our white bass trips, and uh, you know, doing that thing, we run into the gar quite frequently and either yep. one or both of us ends up catching one or two. And we see a lot of them and they, they spawn at the same time the whites do. So we get to see them doing their thing in the, in the creeks. And we had the bow, bow hunting episode. Anyway, there's a lot of interest in the, in fish nerd nation right now, uh, concerning gar. And I had a listener, uh, Mark Peeper, he sent me a thing on how he fixes gar. And I sent it to you because you and I get all worked up over this culinary stuff yep. and uh what'd you think of that man well all i can tell you now is i gotta go out and catch one and eat it because <laughs> <laughs> um, you know it's like okay uh sure this sounds good I've, I've had alligator meat uh which is something that mark uh mentions and i thought it was pretty good and so if gar tastes anything like alligator then i'm all for it i you know i've often thought about this it's just not been something i'm got around to eating and mainly the issue is what everybody runs into with these things apparently is the is getting into them <laughs> it's the hardest part of cleaning a gar is getting in through the that coat of armor uh and so i just never messed with it i always just put them back i thought they were fun to catch but i just put them back but now i'm like okay i gotta try one of these things <laughs> yeah because because we kind of assigned ourselves a little uh, research because I'm in the same boat. I've, I see them interesting, you know, and I've been watching guys do this or that, how to catch them on flies, how to catch them on, on rope and, and, and this kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, and the guys that catch them with rope are, are it, it's a real pain to get a rope lure out of a guard's mouth. So they're always on the hunt to just, just tie up a bunch of rope lures and change them as they catch the gar and, and, and get them back later. Uh, but they're always fishing to eat. And I, um, I don't know. Doc Martin's got me thinking gar so darn cool. I don't know. You know, maybe you'd have to clean it for me. I don't know. Or maybe you would have to at least put the coup de gras on it and then I'd go ahead and help clean it. So I'm going to put the big ones back and, uh, you know, number one, the really big ones, like if you watch the same video as I did about the guy cleaning the giant alligator gar with a meat cleaver, uh, <laughs> I'm like, that's probably got your that big of a predatory fish has probably got your lifetime supply worth of mercury and pcbs in it um anyway right so i'd be and you know some of these some of these uh longos gar we have up here can get pretty good size uh, when i was a kid we caught one on a catfish trot line that was a good four feet long um you know and uh so i put back the big ones the big spawners keep a smaller one for the table just kind of like everything else you know but um, yeah, I mean, I think again, here, we've got an under, underutilized resource. There's certainly a lot of them out there and, uh, you know, take some pressure off some of the other fish and, and try, try this out. Well, you know, and I don't want everybody, to, I don't want it to light up and be a trendy thing for, for rich people to do or to want, because you know how that can go. But, but I do want, you know, the average person, uh, not to be afraid to try them. So I've got to be not afraid to try them. And all I hear is that they are really, really good. 
but you were talking about that. I, I didn't watch that whole video, but when I, I just saw the, the, uh, the thumbnail and the guys, you know, grinning with that big, big thing. And I figured, man, he's going to feed the whole town. You know, he's going to, yeah, that's, that was a lot of fish. That was a lot of fish because a guard is <laughs> as big as he was. <laughs> yeah, it was. And, and, uh, I think it was down in Mexico or down in Texas or somewhere like that. It was in but, Texas. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, down there in Texas, yeah, they grow some big gator garb, but not, that would not be for me either. I, uh, of course, the, the the always the pollutant issue, I, I never think of as much as the genetic issue and keeping them around and how old that fish must be. But, boy, we see a lot of gar in Kansas rivers, and I want to catch one and eat one, too. Uh, and it's definitely going to be a smaller one, nothing, nothing, you know, 18 inches, 20, 24 inches, something like that. Just a couple babies. Just to, I figure their skin's going to be a little easier to navigate. Because one of the reasons I want to do this with you, Jeff, because I know you'd go out and geek out on it. Because when I went down that rabbit hole, I'd seen a video where a guy used tin snips to prep his gar. And I was, by the time I got into it, try to go back and revisit that. I don't know how it came up on my search results or what I said, but I couldn't find that one. I came across a plethora of methods. Okay. Not just the, yeah. the crazy guy with the cleaver on the, on the gar as tall as he is, but uh, you want to go over some of the stuff you saw? Well, I mean, I, I, mostly I saw people using uh, the tin snips and the side cutters and, and, but then the, the cleaver coming at it from the back and just chopping down, starting at the base of the tail kind of, and getting in kind of coming in through the very top part of the tail with that cleaver and getting in under the skin at the very back of the, the fish and working your way forward um, and then once you get all the way up to the top, then you can get a knife in there and start slicing down along the sides. And basically, uh, just, you basically kind of unwrap the whole fish all at once uh, is, seems to be the best method I've seen. I mean, if I'm going to go do this, I'm going to try that guy's cleaver method because I have a big old Chinese cleaver and uh, it's pretty sharp. And I think I could get through it that way. But yeah, 10 snips. Uh, side cutters, all kinds of stuff. But yeah, you're looking at serious cutting utensils to get through that initial uh, ganoid or ganoid. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce that word. Those the super hard scales. I mean, they, it really is an armored fish. Well, I did not. I made a mistake. One of the videos I decided not to watch, um, and I should have, because clearly coming in at the tail, we're all just so driven by conditioning and logic. You know, it's always everybody's attacking it from the head because that's how we do a crappie. You know, it's like. Right. But. Right. So that looks like to me, honestly. Yeah. That looked to me like the easiest way to do it. Now, I think you may have to have a slight. I don't know how good that's going to work on the smaller ones, but I mean, it looked it looked like a good way to do it. It ends up being, uh, you know, it's, it's a hassle, but I think uh, that. I would try that just because I have the tool <laughs> that, exactly. I, that I'm confident with, right? I'm pretty confident with that cleaver and it's, it can take abuse. It's soft metal. It can be resharpened really easy. So I can bang the heck out of it, trying to get this fish cleaned and, and then not have to worry too much about taking care of it, but I can get it sharpened back up easy. All right. Well, I hear you now. I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark's email here real quick. Kind of go from there. All right. All right. This, this is Mark's words right here. Gar has an epic coat of armor. I use side cutters these days. You'll need something suited for cutting metal, like side cutters or a pair of tin snips. My first step is to cut off the head of the fish at the gills. To do this, use your cutters to snip around the circumference of the fish and then a stout knife to finish the job. Then I use the cutters to snip down the belly of the fish so the insides can be removed. Finally, cut the armor down the back of the fish. 
The armor can now be grabbed with a pair of pliers and worked off the meat. I would advise during these steps to wear a leather glove on the hand securing the fish. This will prevent the skin between your index finger and thumb from being pinched by the heavy scales as you're working. I've become blood brothers with many fish by skipping this PPE in the past, and I still can't breathe underwater. What you are left with is a long tube of meat with bones in it. I cut this tube into shorter sections that will fit into the fry daddy. Roll the meat into your favorite breading and fry it up. Don't let your fear of choking on a rogue fishbone scare you from trying this fish. Like their armor, gar have a stout skeleton. Once the meat is cooked, the bones are easily identified and the meat is easily picked off with a fork. That's just got me all uh, all worked up. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a good video from the Missouri Conservation Department about um about cleaning and cooking gar. I'll get the link and put it on the Facebook Fish Nerds Facebook page. Um I found that one to be really instructive about cleaning uh and doing gar too. So that that's one that I'll try to link up on that on the Facebook page. Well, I'm going to get back to the to the the more uh, traditional methods, but the craziest method I saw. I mean, the cleaver guy was cool, but the guy that did his with a um, sawzall, he uh, <laughs> yeah, I cut it up with a sawzall. That was that was I, I ain't messing around, man. It, it, I it, think it, I missed that one. <laughs> that was nuts. I mean, we see all kinds of things, but the the method that I liked, the one I saw, and I wish I could still find the video, is the guy basically uh, got the head off the thing using uh he used the tin snips just like mark did to you know get everything away and then finally you know take the skull off where it joins joins the uh backbone he used a cleaver and uh or hatchet one of the two but i saw a lot of hatchets too hatchets and axes uh in the gar prep videos that you can see on youtube as well uh they get involved uh and and some uh, bone saws and some standard uh lumber saws and all kinds of crazy stuff but the main thing is 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 he used the snips to to do like Marky, you know, gets a start on that, but he only did the belly. He only just opened up the belly, and his whole thing was just open up the belly, get the guts out, get the head off, you know, and then he just fills that body cavity up with butter and herbs and 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 aromatic vegetables or whatever he wants that gar to taste like, throws it on the grill, all right. And then does exactly what Mark just flakes the meat out, serves it up, and people just can't get enough. So you can fry, yeah. you can grill, you can this, you can that. You know, it just sounds like a fascinating fish. Now, there is one caveat. Do you remember what it is when you go to fix gar? Do not eat the eggs. Do not eat the eggs. They are loaded with oxalic acid, and they, they you shouldn't even, you should always have a glove on for protection, both of your hand uh, from the scales, but also just you do not want even the egg juice and stuff getting on your skin. They say you just, just you get, you know, if you actually, yeah, you will not it, have a good, you will not have a good time. Yeah. You, you accidentally get a gravid female. You want to uh, take real care to get that egg sack out of there as intact as possible. Rinse it out. You can still eat her, but just there's only, only birds can eat them things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the same things in like stinging nettles. <laughs> you don't want to eat. Well, I mean, you, it, it, it's yeah it's it's rough don't uh i don't think it's going to kill you but i don't think you're going to enjoy what happened to you after you ate it <laughs> right well, like, yeah 
That, that's what I. That's what I heard is is that it's not going to kill you, but you you might wish you were dead. <laughs> right, because it does a heck of a number on your kidneys. So you talk about it, yeah, having a backache yeah. that feels like a stomach ache at the same time. Yeah, right? yeah, you don't yeah. want that going on. All right, Jeff. Well, listen, folks. I hope we gave you some information either on Mark's recipe, Jeff's ideas, how he's going to tackle it, uh, my idea. But dude, now we got an excuse. We talk about this every year since I've known yeah. you. We're going to get out in the summer and get after some gar somewhere. We got to get up make it happen to the man. Delaware. Yeah, yeah I'm off. Go I, Delaware. I got I got a, I got a three day weekend coming up. We have to maybe go hit that Delaware River. Well, I know they're man. up there. You know, I'm not saying it's your fault, brother, because I, you know, the thing is I get just getting up so busy. And I mean, this summer is one of yeah. the best ever, but yeah, but still, if you, you have my permission to grab the professor and sneak off without me, how's that? Nah, nah, you're coming with me for this one. Okay. All right. Well, listen, let's see if we can make it happen. All uh, right. In the, in the meantime, keep me posted on your fishing and so forth. It's great to see you, man. And we Alrighty. will talk to you soon. All right. See you, John. Bye now. Bye. All right, man. What'd you think about that? What'd you think about the thing about cleaning the giant alligator gar with the cleaver? Wasn't that nuts? Apparently there's more to know than uh, Garth Brooks and Garth Hudson. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. <laughs> you know, the fish we get around here, you can take out a small fillet knife or a pocket knife if you have to, and kind of, you know, take care of the fish, re reduce them to fillets and skin them if you want to. But that whole cleaver thing, the meat cleaver, I mean, that's just, that's way beyond what I'm used to here. Yeah, I, I uh, we're actually going to go on Friday. As we said, we're going to try to go this Friday. We're going to try to catch one. We're going to try to clean it. But apparently they're excellent eating. I mean, the, the gentleman that sent in the email, Mark Peeper, he is a dedicated river fisher, cat, gar, drum, carp, all those good fish. And uh, he's eating them all the time. And he says they're delicious. It's just a matter of getting into the son of a gun. So we hope we gave you a few tips. There's some links down in the show notes to uh, YouTube videos on how to get into a gar and uh, we will report back with our experience just as soon as we can because we're awfully excited to catch a gar and put it on the table and see if what mark said is 100 percent true you know i'm a big i'm a big fan of a big big proponent of catch and release now i really want to try some gar i mean i know <laughs> i and we are and, and really jeff and i would catch these we always really, but i i do i do I, doc martin loves the things and it's kind of spread to me like i told you uh, like I told Jeff in the piece, I don't know, but I mean, yeah, there's, they're, they're plenty plentiful. And, um, uh, I would like to get them to be recognized as table fare because, um, it's another thing that gives a fish legitimacy. I don't really want them to become a trend like some of these other fish, like the poor red fish or some of these other fish. The next thing, you know, everybody's out trying to catch snakeheads or what have you and uh, all that. Uh, but I certainly would like to see them uh, kind of go up the ladder a bit as far as table fare, just because of the the added respect that they will garner from such things. So I'll let you know what they're like when we find out. Or one day we could meet up and, uh, you know, we could swap some striped bass or, you know, some pressure shark or something or some bluefish for some gar. There we go. There we go. I, I, I have had barbecue bluefish or grilled bluefish Ooh. once, and that's a big, long story that I can't get into right now. So there's a teaser that may never get satisfied, but maybe I'll tell you the story <laughs> another time. In the meantime, we have the pond lady on the next segment, the Oklahoma pond lady, Amy Robeson, a friend that when Clay said he wanted more diversity on the show, I started looking around for diversity and I found this multi-talented young lady that does some modeling and does this and does that and does uh, uh, feral animal care and all kinds of stuff, but she is a pond management expert. That also works for the Oklahoma Fishing Game. And when my pond last year, Todd, my pond got covered 
50, 60% covered in algae, green algae. And then we started having this gigantic blue green algae uh, bloom as well. And I called her up and she put me on the solution. So you like yogurt? <laughs> Who doesn't like yogurt? Who doesn't like yogurt? It's and good for your gut, right? It's good for your gut. Well, we're going to find out about probiotics for ponds and the amazing similarity between cleaning up your gut and cleaning up the bad organisms in your pond by using beneficial bacteria. So sit tight, my good friend, and let's listen to Amy Robinson, the Oklahoma pond lady, fill us in on pond probiotics. Hey, Amy. Hey, John. Good to see you in Glasswater Studios this morning. How's Amy doing? I am good. Good. Got lots of rain last night. Nice to be blessed with rain. We're getting a lot of hit and miss, mostly miss. We did get an inch the other day, but um, mostly it's just been a little tenth of an inch, quarter inch. But anyway, glad to be getting some rain because that's putting water in my pond. And I just wanted to get with you this morning to talk to you about pond probiotics because you know, the listeners, I want you to know that my pond last year, come August, was in the most horrible shape. It had algae coverage, 50%. It had blue-green algae busting out everywhere. And anytime I'd get a north wind, or especially a northwest wind, it would blow into my side, into my corner of the pond, and just put down a mat so thick you could almost walk on it. And I called the Oklahoma pond lady, Amy Robeson, and I said help what do i do and she said get yourself some probiotics and she told me what brand and i went and got me some pond works and i applied it the way she told me to and within two months i'm not going to say it was completely clear problem solved but that algae was beating a hasty retreat so i wanted to come on and explain or have you explain or you help me explain or you explain to me but this phenomenon pond probiotics because i you know we've all heard about the yogurt thing and it's kind of you know probiotics uh-huh. this and all that but you can do that to a pond right. too so what what is probiotics for a pond amy and and why does it help with this algae mess well uh, it's a great topic it's something i'm super interested in the whole realm of uh, using bacteria for managing problems is definitely something that I feel is underutilized currently and is getting a lot more popularity because of things like yogurt, because probiotics help people just like they help ponds. So a lot of times when I'm discussing issues with a pond, I do like to compare it to a person. So you know, you, you you want me to launch into probiotics. And of course, in my mind, that actually brings up the entire concept of a microbiome, of aging in ponds, of why you end up in a blue-green algae cycle. So this is a really cool topic that was just broached with this one single application technique, which is putting live bacteria into your pond. So Let's back up a little bit, okay? So you said your pond was in bad shape. You were getting this blue-green algae bloom. You know, I did not look at it under the scope, but from the photos that you sent me, I'm inclined to believe that it was microcystis, which is one that's fairly ubiquitous, very common 
It's one of the main offenders in, in Oklahoma waters. The uh, proclivity of that one to become dominant in high nutrient situations and degraded systems is not to be undersold. So let's talk a little bit about blue-green algae too. So okay. John, blue-green well, algae. Well, just a second now, you know, my, you know, I had a lot of green-green algae. Right. As you know, my pond is on, and I've said that some of the listeners know too, that my pond is on a drainage of uh, a row crop fields. There are a couple of catch ponds upstream from us and, and some meadow and some woods, but mostly it's kind of a straight shot out of these fields. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned mm -hmm. high nutrient, I can get a nutrient flush. And I think that's what kind of causes this. Right. And so I, I you know, I, I think about blue green algae for pro probiotics, but this applies to green algae as well. Organisms that are photosynthetic or have photosynthetic capabilities, plants, right? So even though blue green algae are technically a bacteria, they still have the capability of producing their own food. So they sort of get lumped in with plants right i mean so, aren't they their own kingdom or their own they're like, their own thing their own their alien or kind of not quite that okay okay but that's they, right but they, they that's, respond to these treatments and that's what's important they do well and the reason that they're different we'll get into that but when you talk about nutrients for plants you're generally talking about nitrogen and phosphorus so most plants need both to survive right your green algae and your rooted vegetation, your macrophytes, your larger plants need both nitrogen and phosphorus. In nutrient limiting situations where nitrogen may not be available in high amounts, blue green algae are sort of like legumes. They can fix atmospheric nitrogen. So they really only need a phosphorus source why they can be insidious. So we'll get we'll get into that more. But when you have an overload of especially phosphorus, that's that's so that's the key one. Obviously both are important nitrogen and phosphorus, but we're key in on phosphorus for most of the rest of this conversation, okay? When you have an overload of phosphorus, then usually what can utilize that the quickest is going to be your algae, either green algae or blue green algae. And so whatever is the most able to utilize those nutrients will. What we would prefer is that nutrients be used by our macrophytes, more of the pond weed, uh, the submerged and emergent vegetation. But generally, growth process of those larger plants can't happen fast enough to compete with algae and blue-green algae. So can I cut in here real right. quick? Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. absolutely. I can. I I was gonna, you know, back you up there because this is what happened. Is I, I think it seems like a mathematical uh, reproductive, you know, warfare because the, all of a sudden you get the algae bloom, and right. they're they're eating up all this phosphorus, which I assume is what is that the P? What is it the P or the K in NPK? It's, it's the P. It's the P. Okay, so you got all the phosphorus coming down, and it, it you know it's a generate you know it's a perpetual generation type mechanism in that it's getting its share of the phosphorus the quickest and then it reproduces so it can even gather in more phosphorus it's it, it just right all my longleaf pondweed you know how i love longleaf pondweed i know and uh, my little hyacinth i know it's an it's an invasive and all that but it's it's a pretty one and i don't mind it so much especially since 
it gets too big and gets out very far from shore the carp start eating it and, it, and it's all it's all fine because we still have two or three big old white carp in there that kind of go after stuff oh. and uh so yes it it just like it is a race like you say and 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 the altitude generally wins because it's got the fleeter foot the the faster reproduction right so anything in a small system well everything in nature is all about competition so when you have a system that is overloaded with the phosphorus then of course like you said competitive advantage goes to your single-celled or smaller multicellular algae types blue green algae things like that so in order to control phosphorus you know that's really what pond management and restoration unless you're looking at manipulating fish stocking densities for bigger bass or the shocking sampling stuff any of the management and restoration really comes down to managing your phosphorus and now phosphorus can be either in the water or in the substrate right so you can have phosphorus available in the water column itself the majority of it though is going to be actually in the bottom of the pond so we'll talk about this more, more too but the substrate, the bottom of a pond, is where the phosphorus is most likely going to not absorb, but adsorb, so with a D. And that just basically means the phosphorus will stick to particles of clay or soil, things like that. So it's actually available in the bottom of the pond as well. So anytime you have a turnover event or maybe a high rain event something that causes a lot of wind and wave action where the bottom of the pond can be stirred up you can have these incremental releases of phosphorus from the soil in addition to what might wash in during rain event so when you have ponds that are older like we've talked about yours is, is quite an old pond so it's really been developing this substrate layer for a long time and john if you're anything like me you probably swim in as many farm ponds or have swam in as many farm ponds as uh the next guy but if you ever jump off into an old pond and you hit that squishy muck layer at the bottom that is basically just liquid fertilizer that muck is it's very good for growing things but it doesn't really go away unless you drain it and dredge it or use nutrient mitigation um so well i'll tell you one thing that. It, it it that black muck sure smells like fertilizer of it a kind. does it, it <laughs> and, does and it and gets it on will, your dog you but you're gonna have to wash him off <laughs> oh but it bubbles you know you you uh step off into a pocket it'll bubble those rotten egg gases well that let's talk about why that happens okay so in an aquatic situation where you have lots of organic matter mixed with inorganic matter so the bottom of your pond is not just one it's not just organic or inorganic so you do have a mix of clay soil you know leaves sticks fish poop all kinds of dead critters there's lots of of organic and inorganic matter but over time if you think about how things start to compact, it's called liquefaction. Essentially, all of those organic 
molecules or organic matter turns into basically a liquid muck, which is what you see that black sludge is essentially liquefied organic matter mixed with your actual inorganic substrate, whatever it may be, depending on where you're located. So when it becomes very liquid, uh, there's not a lot of air pockets in there. So if you think about it as having sort of like a granular solution or a granule of some kind of uh, maybe a fertilizer or something, what happens when you mix it with water and turn it into a slurry, then you remove all of those air pockets in between those particles. When you do that, it becomes very inhospitable to your good bacteria. So this is where we get into the bacteria part. So the good bacteria, like we need in our guts to help us digest, are, are aerobic. They need oxygen. So these are like your lactobacillus, like your yogurt bacteria. Well, the bottom of a pond becomes so liquefied and, and inhospitable to these aerobic bacteria that they become mostly inhabited by the anaerobic bacteria that create those rotten egg gases, like the the bubbling sulfide, uh, hydrogen sulfide type gases. Okay, and so this is, the same, this is the same as pond farts. And pond farts. Pond farts. And yes. yeah, just like the gut, you're embarrassed, you're getting the bad gas, you're, you know, you can't bad hide gas. it, and you need to, you want to settle that whole chamber in your body down well i mean it's essentially the bottom of your pond is like the guts of a person and if your guts are too overloaded with material they are not going to function as well as if you have a good clean system that's full of the good bacteria well sometimes if you can't get rid of the material altogether it's still better to have the good bacteria in there than not. So this is where your probiotics come in. Now, actually getting them to go into the substrate of a pond that's compacted, that's liquefied, that's sludge can be difficult. You need, that's where the aeration that we've talked about in the past can really have a a, a cascade of benefits because We've talked about it, you know, it can relieve stagnation, stratification, but it can also create pockets of habitat in the substrate. However, just getting them in there alone can help enough to keep you from having to apply chemicals a lot of times. And so we'd rather get them in there. Absolutely. I, I, I know you, your, your, you, you know, your drive for perfection and your drive to give your customers the best service possible, but don't not use probiotics because you can't do aeration. All right. Exactly. You live in Kansas. Cause you get a lot of aeration on my pond max depth, six and a half feet, maybe six, seven feet right in there. Um, average depth probably three feet. So the wind, she blows, she blows. We get a lot of aeration. I just want to tell you though. It, it did me a world of good to put that in there, even without the aeration. I mean, I, I, I we're running low on Absolutely. time and I want to, want to kind of get, bring it back to my place. And, and cause I'm excited to tell you, you know, I did the, I did the treatment last summer uh-huh. and wondering how, you know, what's it going to look like this spring? What's it going to look like this spring? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. One thing that we were having trouble, even in the wintertime is turnovers on the pond would take forever. 
and we would have this weird gray colored mm -hmm. water. There's one time even when the ice was safe, which is not very common. This is in 2020. I went down there. I cut a hole in the ice. I thought it'd be have a ball crappie fishing. And when that the water bubbled up in the hole, it was just this gray color. And I'm like, how in the heck can it be turning over with ice on top? But I guess that's entirely possible with the because I guess right under the ice is the warmest water. Um, and, and Clay's talked enough about trout and other fish cruising that layer uh, to feed. But um, we, we had the most beautiful clear water. Okay. And it was so helpful, Amy, because it allowed our bluegill and bass and crappies to all spawn out in deeper water because it was clear, mm -hmm. which they naturally, you know, want to do anyway to stay away from the birds and such. And we had a spring drought. We only, we did not have much rain. The white bass run was dismal and we really had kind of took it on the chin, but by golly, we didn't have any fish kill. We didn't lose a fish. So we, that's we, great. You know, in years past, those poor fish being up shallow because it's so green and has so much free floating algae in it that they have to get up shallow. And I told well, you when I first met you, I told you about my bluegill kill. And uh -huh. I had one of the first things I ever called into fish nerds. I talked about it. So I want to talk to you. Well, real quick. well, go ahead. You hit on, you hit on something real quick that I think is important is that the turnover events in a pond are not as predictable as a lake. A pond, a small system can mix. Oh, it's called polymictic. You instead of having a a a turnover event in the spring and in the fall, like in a lake, a smaller body of water can turn over intermittently throughout the entire season. And every time it does, like we mentioned previously, when that phosphorus that's bound to the sediment gets released through a turnover event, then you can have a significant bloom of algae or or blue green algae. And that's another way that those probiotics as a maintenance can really help to reduce those effects of turnover events that are very unpredictable because you don't exactly know when it's going to happen in a pond like you do in a lake. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we found is that getting this, it's almost like treating a septic system. You know, you treat your septic system. I don't know if you guys do right. septic like yes, we do. Yeah, we have, yeah, you know, yeah, to treat yeah, it yeah. once a month, right? Right. So um, that's the same thing with the pond. And it's like we've, we've had lots of our clients do. And this is not something that I even charge people to do most of the time myself because you can buy this. And we are not, uh, you know, we are not partnered with Pondworks. We're not, not endorsed by Pondworks. It's, it's just a pro product that we found online that had great reviews. We started using it. We really like it sure there are other formulations out there that'll work it's you know it's more important that you get something that you can get in the pond um it doesn't have to be exactly what we recommend but getting something in during the warmer months when you have a lot of decomposition is really going to help to reduce problematic green algae and blue green algae in fact we have had success in and this helped with your pond too and not just mitigating, but reversing blue-green algae blooms with the probiotics alone. And so not having to use like a single bit of chemical control for that issue is pretty game-changing. It is totally game-changing. And let me tell you that the, during that drought, and we got this unseasonable, you know, 90-degree heat and all this in April, and I started seeing blue-green algae. And I, I mm -hmm. ordered up uh, another four pack of, of the pond works. And I was kind of, um, I'm, you know, with my schedule, blah, 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 you know, or this or that would happen. And I kept putting off, putting it in. And finally in June, I got it in, but by then 
it was gone. I mean, the blue green yeah. algae was gone. I didn't obviously with the warmer, the the, the more wind. I don't know what exactly, but I, I enjoyed watching. Well, it should go away on its own, and a healthy system, blue green algae should not be as scary as it is in some of these, you know, uh, ponds that you might have heard having fish kill events or whatever. Those are severely degraded systems, and usually those events will last for long periods of time. If you have a short bloom that comes on and goes away, that's more indicative of a healthier system that can rebound. And and blue-green algae is everywhere. It's not something that just gets introduced or it's non-native or, I mean, it can be invasive. But these are native species that are just, by competitive effects, being able to get a leg up. And if they go away on their own, that's what we would want to happen naturally. So that just shows me that we're sort of shifting it back. That pond is getting back to where it was before you had some of the issues that sort of led to that cascade. So that's a good sign, you know, and and I will say that while the probiotics may not be great at actually reducing a significant amount of the muck at the bottom, it can definitely help with the phosphorus loading in the water column. Anything that washes in, blows in the, that it, it just, we're learning more about this all the time. And okay. I, I mean, I didn't know about probiotics before I got on my own. So well, I'm glad you found out about it. I'm glad I am a big believer in it. Now I want to ask you something because we are, we were very short on time, but I, I <clears throat> got to bring this up because what I did, I enjoyed watching what algae was there. Not only the surface algae reduced, but I looked at the algae in the water and it was like, Instead of being big, long, goopy strands, it's just all these little filaments, you know, little filaments. Mm-hmm. I mean, the very, very longest, like a half inch, but mostly just little separate filaments. And then even that free swimming, free floating type algae ha- was gone. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. The, the, the band of longleaf pond weed around the edge now is back to being three, four feet wide. So I'm Good. totally stoked. Um, but I want to ask is my last question. And then if we, we can revisit this, maybe if, uh, another time, but um, is it possible to overapply? Because some people say, Oh, you want to keep your algae at a 10 to 20% coverage. This stuff's pretty much done it all in probably two, two, three, four, five percent tops is all I got left. Algae wise sticking to some brush here or to some grass over there, but otherwise it's gone, baby. Well, in most situations with closed systems that have very little to no flow through, you're going to end up more on a situation of being hypertrophic where you have high levels of nutrient accumulation. If you have a situation where you have a very low nutrient system, and this is not common where we're at, I'm trying to think of, you know, maybe, maybe rocky substrate up north where there's not a lot of accumulation, maybe you'd have a nutrient deficiency, but I can't really see going too heavy with the probiotics, especially if you're having a an overgrowth of some kind, whether it be algae or vegetation or what have you. That's indicative on its own of a overaccumulation of nutrients. You, you're eutrophic, hypertrophic. So in that case, I don't think you could. But when it's really hot, I would always err on the side of caution, go a little bit less aggressive, maybe space out your dosages if you're having to do more than once a month, especially if you don't have air, just to avoid overloading the oxygen demand. But we've used that stuff in some pretty precarious situations 
because we didn't really have a choice. It was either get the probiotics in and hope for the best or wait for an inevitable fish kill from a massive blue-green algae bloom that's going on. So if you have to take your pick, I'm definitely going to to try to mitigate something that's potentially toxic to to humans and to wildlife. But as of now, we've we've only had really great luck with it. All right. Well, that's encouraging too, because I saw such a dramatic change once I got it in there. Yeah, you're you're I'm fueling up some more questions, but we just don't have time. All I want to do to finish this is say, that's yeah, okay. be careful with your pond works. Yogurt's for you. Don't get a 55 gallon drum of yogurt and put it in your pond. On the other hand, <laughs> don't be drinking no pond works because that, that ain't good for right. you. And no. uh, 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 let's keep, you know, read, read the label. But anyway, this is fantastic, Amy. Thank you so much for introducing me to this concept. Thanks for coming in You're this welcome. morning on your Sunday morning. I sure appreciate you coming in and talking to our listeners about it because it's really fascinating and it's amazing how, uh, I mean, you're just going out of your mind when you're seeing your, your beloved pond, uh, turn into a mess. And I was just very pleased to see that this product lived up to its claim. So thank you. Well, and you you know me, I am always hesitant and skeptical. I was hesitant to buy in until I started seeing it actually work. And if you can create competition rather than applying a chemical, that's just going to push the whole pond in the direction we want, which is a sustainable, healthy, long-lasting ecosystem that's going to provide not just recreational benefit, but benefit to the wildlife in your area and to the planet as a whole. Right on. All right, Amy, thanks for showing up this morning, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Now, Todd, I don't want you going out and drinking no pond works now. You just stick to that yogurt, okay, bro? Yeah, I, I got to say, I was fascinated by listening to her and uh, obviously her, her level of um, education is it, it, baffling. And I appreciate the logic, the, the, you know, the common logic in fixing a, a pond that's, that's out of balance. But the word probiotic and pond had never occurred to me. And I've certainly dealt with enough trout, you know, trout, trout ponds or ponds that have large mouth and small mouth and stuff like that. But I'd never heard the association of probiotics and looking at the um, returning to a level of balance like that I man that was that was that's amazing she's she's brilliant she is brilliant and it's wonderful to have her as a correspondent on the show and i'm telling you i just it's one of those things that um well when a product lives up to its promises it's kind of a surprise i hate to say that but it's true and uh i was down there the crappie stopper came out today kim burnett uh and whenever he comes around i gotta drop everything and and chat with him some because i hardly ever get to see him so we went down there and he's like wow this pond is so much different than last year he, he just couldn't believe it water's nice and clear um, plenty of fish activity the plants around the edge everything everything's growing back the pond's in great shape and i still have two gallons of the stuff left over for next year so i'm in and good shape know, honestly you know john what else is good about that is you've not only have you restored the health of the pond you know because you wanted to be healthy and also because the fish and you know that, that whole thing you've also you've done something good for nature. Like, you know, you got a body of water that not to sound too out there, but belongs to the earth. You've sort of fixed it. You've cured it. There's a great benefit there, you know, a little bit of balance again. Oh, that's exactly right. And Amy and I talk about this all the time and you can go as far out there as you want, because I love it in terms of that, that I see the deer, I see the birds, I see the, the all kinds of wildlife. I'm, I've got this habitat and blue space is so important. 
and um, keeping blue space healthy and clean as you can is is so important. So when my pond is sick, it puts me in a panic, and whoever helps me make her well, well, that's a top top notch thing for me. So I was really great, grateful to be turned on to this pond probiotics thing because out here with the heat and the abundance of algae, it is a necessary tool in the hands of a good pond manager. Excellent. Excellent. Three, 3D management, 3D ecology management. I love it. That's it. That's it. All right. You ready for our featured presentation, my friend? Oh, I'm kind of tingly. Well, you ought to be tingly because this guy has been with the fish nerds pretty much since the beginning. His name is Luke Chalmings. He is from Australia. He is one of our original correspondents. We call him our international correspondent. And of course, we we get along real well together being lure designers and being half crazy, both of us. Uh, but he got in touch with me and said, hey, mate, I got to go to the World Recreational Fishing Contest and I'd like to come on and do a report about it. And I couldn't help but jump at the chance. The only thing is he lives in South Australia. I live in Kansas. So I'm up about four or five in the morning to talk to him and he's just getting done with dinner, sitting down to talk to me, but strap yourself in Todd. Let's let Luke Chalmings tell us about the world recreational fishing conference held in Melbourne, Australia in February of this year. I think you're going to love it. Awesome. I can't wait. All right. This is fantastic. You're looking good, bro. Thank you. And yourself. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, buddy. I'm just going to pretty much hand this over to you. You told me you went to the World Fishing Conference and you wanted to talk about it. And I know our listeners would love to hear about it. First up, g'day. How are we? G'day, viewers. Um, it's great to be back on the show. Thank you uh, very much for the invite. Um, are you enjoying your warm weather over there? Because it's as cold as a mother-in-law's kiss over here at the moment. So, um, yeah, I'll just move that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so how's the weather over your neck of the woods? Oh, it's great this week, last week. Big heat wave, over 100 80% humidity, oh. classic Kansas summer Ooh. misery, but we had a cold front, we got a good rain, and we're doing okay now. Okay, very good. And have you been fishing lately? Well, yeah, yeah. In fact, yesterday I did a little riding, and uh, it's too late to catch you. I went ahead and went down to the pond and caught a few bass and uh, had a good time oh, doing very it. Good. Is that small mouth or large mouth? Large mouth, large mouth bass. Very good. Excellent. All right, and uh, how's the lead-free industry going, my friend? How are your lures going? It's it's going good. I mean, we're still not sustainable. We're scaling up, slow but sure. So I can't pay all my bills yet. Still have Kathy. Has to, she has a business of her own, so I still have to borrow money from her. But uh, it, it's it's going good. I'm getting a lot more exposure, and um, I'm, I'm just... Skipping away. Hey, and uh, I'll just briefly, while you brought up your better half, I heard that uh, congratulations are in order for a, um anniversary not so long ago. No, yeah, we had our anniversary in June and um, 40 years, man. Wow, congratulations. No, well, that's excellent. Yeah, well, all right. Well, now that I've interviewed you, I might have a talk about myself. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, um, in... February of this year, I went. I was lucky enough to be invited to attend the World Recreational Fishing Conference, the 10th World Recreational Fishing Conference, 
And uh, this was in Melbourne, or as you boys say, boys and ladies say, Melbourne, but Melbourne in Australia. So that was a fantastic um, experience to be part of. This was um, due to my work with Ozfish Australia with habitat enhancement and whatnot. I was lucky enough to win Ozfish of the Year in 2022 for South Australia, which was a a fairly big achievement um, on my behalf, I have to admit, and um, I was very, very, you know, humbled to uh, to have achieved it and um, to be recognised for my works. So um, part of that was in getting to go to this gig, which was fantastic. Um, there was just so much to talk about over there. It's, um, I'm going to have to refer to my notes, but um, I was lucky enough to um, sit in on... Um, quite a few overseas um, speakers and uh, none the least was um, a man by the name of Robson Green. You may have heard of him, I'm not sure. He's an English actor of fairly good repute and um, he had a fishing show, Extreme Fishing with Robson Green. And um, he got up and done a keynote speech and, um, yeah, look, uh, what a funny man. and. Um, just such a conservationist at heart. Um, he talked about fishing and the ocean and water as um, the blanket for the soul. I like and I that. thought, wow, I like that too, John. Yeah, the blanket for the soul. Just basically talking about the healing powers of fishing and how um, in Europe and in some places in England it's actually prescribed as a um, – a way to combat uh, mental health issues, depression and that. So it's actually getting prescribed by, um, you know, the, the medical fraternity. So that's pretty amazing stuff. And it sort of tells you the power of fishing. The power of um, fishing, uh, I know it well. I know it well. I, I do too. I'm uh, going through a bit of a rough trot at the moment and um, we resort to fishing more often than not to put a smile on the dial. But, yeah, so um, I'm sure Robson um, wouldn't mind you using that one, the blanket for the soul. Yeah, so um, like I said, there's so many people over there to um, talk about, but, um, I, you know, there's people from 54 different nations and so there was a lot of information on who eats what, who eats how much, who eats when, where. Um, it was a lot like the fish nerds. It was, you know, fish, fishing and eating fish. And this is what the whole um, conference was about. They spoke on varied topics from hookup rates in um, fish that were baited with scent, artificially baited with scent, so lures that were had an additive put on them as opposed to a lure without the additive, um, trebles versus singles versus barbless versus deep hooking versus top-of-the-mouth hooking. Um, everything you can imagine was addressed, and um, it was just a, yeah, a thoroughly, thoroughly um, life-changing experience, to be brutally honest. It was so um, moving in some ways and um, poignant in others. We spoke to a bloke called Stan from the Torres Strait Islands. Now, this guy is a, a bit of a tribal leader up there and um, up in the um, tropics, the far, very far north of Australia, where the crocs and everything are. And 
one of the word uh, he was a keynote speaker, and um, what I took away from what he said was, and this is a quote: um, "We need a pathway based on kindness, and not we want, but what we can give up." And I thought, wow, that one really stuck with me as well. So, um, you know, with all the uh, issues at the moment with um, fishing and um, commercial fishers versus recreational fishers, the left versus you know people who like to have a you know, well, let's not beat around the bush, sort of vegans and um, alike who like to sort of at times point the finger at fishermen and say it's a bit cruel or whatnot or you shouldn't be eating meat or protein. This was a uh, – and he's not saying having a bet one way or the other. He's just saying, and I'll repeat it again, um, these problems need a pathway based on kindness and not on what we want but what we can give up. So, um, yeah, there was some really, really poignant stuff getting said. Steve Moyles from Trout Unlimited, you may have heard of him. He was amazing. Like um, he um, was talking about the figures and the numbers um, in dollar terms of what they get to spend on um, fixing up waterways in America. And um, I thought I misheard him, but he said $3 trillion. And I put my hand up and said, did you say trillion? We don't have trillions in Australia. We don't have trillions in Australia. We we only go up to billions. So I was a little gobsmacked that um, $3 trillion was being spent on um, acquiring waterways in inland America. I mean, if they decide that there's a, um, a dam wall or something that's um, inhibiting the uh, progress of trout or salmon or whatever it may be in that waterway, they simply buy it. And um, so, you know, there's a bit of power behind recreational fishing and um, lobbyists and the um, government should be well aware of this by now and um, probably should pander to us a little more. Um, yeah, so uh, like I said, it was a, a very, very interesting and um, thought-provoking trip and um, speaking to all these people from so many different nations about fish and fishing and what it means to them. Basically, it, it, it all got back down to this one thing and it's just this feel-good nature that fishing gives. Um, there's not much else that, you know, can match it for that, um, not in my eyes anyway. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk or um, ask oh, any questions. You, you just have such a beautiful role right there. I'm just going to let you go. I, I hate to cut in. Oh, okay. um, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a few questions. First of all, Three trillion now is that the government money and private money? Steve Moyle is a fairly big name over there, even you know in American standards. Um, to us, he's just off the charts. But um, I would dare say there would be private money and public money would be part of that. There would be donations. There would be fundraising. For all I know, National Geographic's chip in. Who would know? I mean, we're talking big money and they do massive projects. I mean, to you know, there's a weir that's the size of, I don't know, let's you know, 150 gigalitres or something like that or 150,000 gigalitres, whatever it may be. If they deem that it's conservation issue and it's um, habitat issue and it's holding up process of fish or it's in any way inhibiting their way to breed or move around the system um they do their very best to either fix it or they'll buy it and um, we were just gobsmacked i mean we were just 
absolutely flabbergasted at the power that um, that organisation wields. So, yeah, there was, look, you know, there was a lot of things said over there that I just took away, you know, the science and that was brilliant. It really was. But there were so many other things like um, uh, I just find it here in my notes, but the um, blanket of the soul one and then the why are we so drawn to water? Why is it? Oh, here we go. So here we go, some conclusions. Let's just say if there's a better, more powerful tool in our quest of well-being, I don't know what that is. That's fishing. Are we drawn to water because we, we are made up mostly of the stuff? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Are we drawn to water because 90% of us is water? I don't know. Fish are in trouble here and there, but with a little bit of help from us as stewards, custodians of a shared and much-loved resource pastime sport, slash, we can turn this around. We all citizens of Earth and Mother Nature will, will respond. Let's help her. So that was just a conclusion that I made from the thing, from the whole um, week that I spent over there. But um. Yeah, it's just it was a really, really good experience. I took a few lures over there and showed them off a bit and but mainly just wandered around the place, make it a bit of a pain in the ass of myself, asking odd questions here and there. Um I've got a whole heap of people to um thank. Well, you know, I would expect at, uh, no less of you than to go and ruffle some feathers, <laughs> stir things up a little bit, be a pain in the ass. That's that's perfectly all right. Let's be honest. There's some really tough questions to be asked and there's some really hard answers to be given. And um, Mother Nature has proved time and time again with just, just a little bit of assistance, um, she will um, recoup and it does recover and regenerate. Um, we've just recently had some massive floods over here, and I shock horror. Um, but yeah, we did. We had two beauties. Um, I think the Murray uh, River flood was the second largest on record for Australia, and um, that's a bloody big flood. I can give you the big tip. And the Darling River also flooded. So um, both of these rivers were desperately in need of it, and it was a horrible thing to happen for the shack owners and um, landowners and that, and it is. They were reasonably well prepared with um, a fair bit of forewarning, as most people do, probably uh, underestimated it slightly. So a few of them got a little bit more flooded out than, um, you know, possibly needed to. Yeah, maybe heeded the warning a bit earlier or something. But the river, getting back to the river and its health, the river needed it desperately. You know, um, we have got... Uh, Issues with carp and pest fish and silt silting up of the mouth and um, just you know, general inland river issues that the rest of the world for, um, has. So um, we're no orphans there, but the flooding was magnificent. Um, it looked beautiful in places where the floodlands all filled up, you know, once in every 10 years and all the river red gums get a big drink and the cod will start to probably recruit a bit better now and hopefully the carp might disappear a bit, although they did have a bit of a, a bit of an influx of breeding recently, but, um, you know, give the cod plenty to eat and, um yeah, it's just one of them things. Inland fisheries and freshwater fish in Australia is such a, it's still such an unknown um, science and we're still learning, you know, every year we're learning something new about them. So, yeah. Well, I uh, already just 
questions questions i mean yeah natural flood cycle for the rivers uh let me what what are the carp are they the same big head and silver carp uh that yeah, we have European carp. Yeah. oh the the, so, the the yellow the yellow carp then the european carp. yeah yeah look we get mirror carp european carp what they call a native carp i'm not 100 percent sure what that means i think that's just an oxymoron myself but um you know like the koi type every we get it all um mm -hmm. and um you know we thank the Poms for that. They came over here, and in their infinite wisdom, they thought, oh, well, let's bring some carp over and let them go and go for a fish. What could go wrong? Well, <laughs> 150 years later, and we've got a biomass that's in the billions of, you know, tons. Um, yeah, a lot went wrong. Same when they brought rabbits. Same when they brought foxes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah it's uh, that. That sad story is is worldwide, and what we have yep. here are these jumping carp. There, one's called a big head, and one's called a silver, and they it's a bad deal. I um, I'm I'm kind of excited though. I, I'm I'm this whole conference thing sounds like a fish nerd's dream. All right, being able to go and meet and talk and hear all this science and hear these opinions and and meet people that are uh, working toward this common goal around the world. Sounds like a lot of fun, but a lot to absorb. How long were you there? I was there um, two days of conference and a couple of nights of, you know, the back slapping and um, dinners and whatnot. Really was quite a big thing. I mean, just, you know, I'm just looking here at the um, itinerary just for day one and there was, well, so there's 25 different seminars that were on just on the one day, most from 15 to 20 minutes, ranging from um, reviewing a decade of long behavioural change intervention and with recreational anglers, um, right down to engaging anglers as citizen science in Norway's newly open recreational tuna fishery. Okay. I mean, we covered everything. I guess. And it was it was a mate, yeah, you name it. We've there would be a topic on here explaining it, or at least trying to, um, you know, quantify it in some way. It just sounds amazing, and um, I'm I'm already just the the, the speakers you've talked about have uh, given me a whole lot to think about. Try not to get too distracted. I'm I'm still just blown away at that at that figure. But I want to get back to the uh, mental health benefits real quick. Not wanting to pry, but what's going on down there, down under, with our friend Luke? How you you, you feeling? All right? Uh, what's going on with you? Oh, look, I have. Um, I'm not sure if you use uh, if the fish nerd fraternity uh, overly aware, but I did have a head injury. About four years ago now. Oh yeah, yeah. We we remember the head injury, and we're we're always yeah, pulling well, for you, there, um, brother. Yeah, look, and uh, it's manifested itself in a few different ways, which has been a bit of a pity. But um, one thing that we are advocating for strongly is um, you know, fishing as a mental health tool, whether it be just you get out in the fresh air, or as I use as a um. An example recently, um, I got a very distressing phone call telling me that, you know, basically I have a bit of brain damage, blah, blah, blah. And um, it was oh, it was horrible. It was life-changing. So as you do, grabbed my fishing rod, went down the creek and started bunging one of my lures around. Anyway, I had these real flash pair of glasses on, which I managed to keep for more than a week, which was amazing in itself. 
and I was staring through the water, real dead, like they're the really good Polaroids, anti-glare, cancer council glasses, wacky do, looking right through the water real deep, and bugger me, there's this bloody big cod following my lure. And from the second I made eye contact with him and he'd done two or three passes and then had a nip at it, and that probably lasted a good five minutes or so, in that five minutes, or maybe ten, I did not think about that phone call once. You know, the phone call telling you that basically you're you're done. As you remember yourself, you're finished. You've got this, you've got that, you're dying with this, whatever, whatever it may be. But for that 10 minutes while that cod was circling that lure and he kept coming out and having a go and going back and he was quite a large fish, I did not think of it. Not even – it went. Totally left my brain. As I was walking back to the car because I didn't manage to catch him, I was walking back to the car thinking, God, how powerful is this shit? I mean, this is better than any drug, better than, I'm not going to say sex, but it's certainly better than a lot of things. And, uh, it, <laughs> and, it, and it can get close. It can get close, man. I mean, it, I, I know those cod, it was a Murray cod. Yeah, they're, big, they're big fish. But look, yeah, look, at the pat, and then that's when I sort of thought to myself, wow. The power of fishing as a healing tool is amazing and it should not be underestimated and it should be um, looked at, as Robson Green said, um, in some of the areas in England and in Europe, they're actually prescribing it as a tool to combat depression. I've been hearing about this more and more over here in the U.S., not just fishing, but out encouraging people to get outdoors and and it's it's kind of heading in that same direction, actually coming under a prescriptive type of application but um i have a good friend and his wife's a therapist and he's had some issues mental health issues and uh she's always you know why don't you call john and go fishing that'll that'll you know that'll help you over the hump or that'll that'll help stave off the the little demons that are i gotta laugh though that non what non-fishermen don't realize is it's a two-edged blade so you go out there and go you know life sucks i'm out of here Kick the dog, get in your ute, drive to your fishing hole, chuck your first lure in, hit the tree, snap it off, break your rod, fall in, catch enough and drive home, and you're in a worse place than you were when you left. So <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. But... You know, fishing can be stressful. Well, Luke, we got to get on out of here, but uh, I just wanted to say uh, it, it's it's just spectacular to see you. Thank you so much, John. And look, you know, pass on my best to absolutely everyone over there. Doc Martin, you know, Hugo. Uh, look, I, you know, I'm pressed to remember them all right at the minute, but believe me, I do. And I thank you for all often. And um, I've, I've missed playing the boys and news lot a lot over the years, but um, I'm never too far away. I'm always commenting or saying something stupid on there. But um, yeah, it's, look, you know, things have toughened up a bit over here, you know. And um, that's just the curveball that life throws you, but um, I'll push on. Okay, what'd you think of Luke? Any a kick? Well, first of all, anybody whose title begins with international, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's pretty, we all have our titles, we all have, our, you know, some letters after our names and that kind of stuff on our resume. <laughs> but man, when, when, when your moniker begins with international, that's, that's, that's some big stuff, man. I'm totally impressed. That is big stuff. And he is 
just an awesome, awesome guy. He does all kinds of con- uh, conservation work. The Ozfish organization that gave him his award is a conservation organization about freshwater fisheries in Australia, especially down where he is in South Australia. He works a couple of uh, reservoirs in particular. Um, he likes to put in um, uh, these, these things. They're called Murray. They call them Murray cod, but they're basically like a freshwater grouper. And they're kind of like a catfish in that they want a hollow log or a little cave or a little what's a what's a to get in and lay their eggs because they take care of their young. They're a nesting spawner. And he gets people to donate big drain tiles, you know, big, big tubes made out of terracotta. He gets brush. He gets this. He gets that. And he has created a ton and ton and ton of, of Murray cod habitat because it's a signature fish of Australia. It's something that people travel down there to try and catch. And of course, it's something that he loves to go out and catch because it's kind of like being able to catch a 50 pound largemouth. I mean, these things just like a gr- grouper kind of looks like a largemouth. Yeah. The world record on a Murray is over 200 pounds. So they use a lot like musky type lures when they're f- going after the big ones. Little he, his Chamos lures makes a little duck lure. They make some other uh, swimming critter lures, very reminiscent of pike and musky fishing. Big, big, articulated, big, sloppy, big, noisy lures to bring in big fish. That's it. That's it. And, and in fact, Clay has a philosophy that when you're not catching, go down in size and make your lure smaller, smaller, smaller until you start catching. But Luca's like, nope, go up, go up. And because big if there's a hungry fish, fish he's going to want the big meal. That's right. Well, plus, if you're trying to hone in on the bigger ones, it's the big lure, big fish concept. You know, you don't want to catch the small ones. You want to catch the big ones. And I love the fact that he's conservation minded. You know, there's maybe maybe in general, but especially post COVID, there's been a lot of people introduced to fishing in the outdoors world. There's a lot of pressure on local ponds and lakes and streams. And I love seeing people that want to catch fish and eat fish and show off what they caught. But they also are keeping that focus squarely on conservation for the next generations, which I mean, I, I, I love that stuff. Oh, yeah, it, it's great. He's, he's a dad, and he has got his eyes on the future and is very concerned about it, and we just adore the guy. He's had a bit of bad luck here, but he is holding strong, and he is bucking up, and he is carrying on as best he can. And we wish you well, Luke, and cannot wait Amen. to have you back on the show. Amen. Amen. All right, buddy. I think it's about time we just get ourselves on out of here. That's a pretty solid week right there. That's a, that's a solid show right there. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. It's the reason I, I put together the show this week is Clay is on his summer schedule. His guiding business has grown so much that he is busy with that constantly. And of course, he has his two teenage girls and his lovely wife that need him a lot. And also his job as a radio DJ keeps him very busy early in the morning. And sure. He got himself a gig here recently. It, it just ended, but he was doing a, a camp counseling gig at a fancy schmancy kids camp there in New Hampshire. And his youngest daughter, Samantha, AKK, AKK, his youngest daughter, <laughs> AKA Samantha. Yeah, you might want to correct that one. AKA. Yeah, I got to correct that one for sure. But his youngest daughter, Samantha, also known as Sammy, but currently known as Blue J, B-L-U dash J. Okay. Got to go to camp for free and trade for Clay going out there and teaching those kids to fish and looking after them and showing them some boat safety and all kinds of stuff. So it was a good deal for him, but it's keeping him awful busy and he's just leaning on the crappie hippie a little bit and he's free to do that because we want to keep this show going. Uh, He would love to do it all the time. Every time Uh, he's addicted to podcasting, but by golly, he knows his priorities and he's got to keep them intact. 
And if I can, and help those young that, kids won't be young for very long. So that's right. That's what that's what I told him. I said, being an empty nester sucks. So <laughs> you enjoy those kids. You enjoy every minute of it. And if I can help you out, I'm gonna do it. Well, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. I'm here to sit in, chit chat, taking all your knowledge, meet some of these cool guests. I'm, you know, this is this is very cool. I'm here to help. Well, I am sure glad you came in tonight. It was very helpful, and I sure do appreciate it. Oh, speaking of fish wrap, Ryder, you did a roundup with some summer products. You want to shout anybody out before we get on out of here? Oh, sure, absolutely. That that was a great that was a great piece. Um, we worked at Daiwa, Daiwa in their twenty five hundred reel, which was brilliant. I've caught a whole bunch of fish on it and been super super happy. Um, we did a piece on Daiwa a little while ago with their with their larger reels, you know, more um for for large bass in the 30, 40 pound class, but they were they were excellent. We worked with Grundens. They have a new uh, they have a new shirt, which was super, super cool. Um, little sun protection, great colors and whatnot. The iLive Bluetooth speaker. Um, and I'll tell you, this may be a stretch, but we worked with this company called uh, Smelly Proof Reusable Bags. And while uh, plastic bags may not be the sexiest thing you ever talk about, they're the coolest plastic bags. And their mission is for us to use a plastic bag for putting fillets in or lures or a, you know, a bologna sandwich. And then washing it out and using it again. Their whole thing is not throwing bags in the trash, which which is brilliant as far as I'm concerned. I love that. I and, do too. Uh, we did a little. We did some work with the Muck Boots people. They have some new boots out, and then we did a piece with Shimano. They have a new squid jig. I know. I know you, you don't get many squid out there in in uh, Middle America, but um, Shimano has a new Sophia Flash Boost squid jig, which is phenomenal. I mean, the thing shines in the package. It's amazing. So yeah, we're real lucky to work with these people. Fantastic, fantastic. And if you need to know more about this or if we talk too fast or you just couldn't get it all written down how can they find your piece on the new products todd brilliant question uh, www.fishwrapwriter.com and that summer gear and gift guide is a few weeks behind us now but it's right there um, on the home page you can put in just click on past articles and that'll show up um, we do a weekly piece and so we're moving right along, but that whole summer gear and gift guide is a big hit for us. We, we do a spring, summer, and fall, and that summer is full of some really cool products. They are really cool products. I am ex especially, I'm especially stoked about that, that bag, uh, because uh, Ziplocs, uh, just don't get me started on the plastics thing. Thank you folks for creating a reusable bag. Amen. Amen. Now you all listened to a couple of fish nerds when you could have been out fishing. We'd like to thank our guests tonight, Amy Robeson and Robeson Outdoor Solutions. We would love to thank Jeff Donaldson's, our own fish nerds librarian. And a big thanks to our international correspondent, Luke Chomings, for coming on all the way from South Australia. We'd also like to thank the mysterious bait caster cylinder for the theme music for our culinary segments. And we'd like to thank our families for putting up with all our crazy fishing podcasting nonsense. And remember to follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. And never trust a free lunch with strings attached. <laughs> and swim against the current every chance you get. <laughs> hey, my man, we made a podcast. Hey, how about that? Despite ourselves, we made a podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds. Fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast, just for the halibut, fried in a basket or broiled in a pan, eat it raw like you're in Siam, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, 
It's a podcast. Okay. Hey, wait, I got a question. Sure. I got it. So, like, I've been to Canada and I've been to Mexico and stuff. Can I get an international title before my name at some point? I mean, I've been to, I've been outside of New England a few times, you know. You know, I'm just, Would maybe you, in the future, could I get a, an international moniker before I'm just, you know, I'm just laying that out there. I think, I think we can do that. We'll have to talk to the chief, but why not? We, <laughs> we, we, we do whatever we can to make our correspondents feel good and to feel important. So if that would make you happy, buddy, I think we can get her done. Someday I want to be the international fish rap writer. It sounds so <laughs> <lofty>. <laughs> that, it, it, that would be great. And it would be fantastic.